National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio each Wednesday morning to discuss national security. And we're joined each week by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in American national security. You may recall that in late spring, we had the Director of Intelligence for U.S. Indo-Pacific Command on our show, Rear Admiral Michael Studelman. Uh, Admiral Studeman also served as the Director of Intelligence for U.S. Southern Command before being selected to take over that same J-2 position with Indo-PACOM. That linkage for Admiral Studeman got me to thinking about U.S. Southern Command. It's one of the geographic combatant commands inside the Department of Defense that, frankly, gets too little attention from our political leaders and from the press. There's a myriad of important national security challenges resident in Southern Command, and our guest today will help us better understand those challenges and the opportunities for the United States in the region. Our guest today is retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General Joseph DeSalvo. Joe served in the U.S. Army for 37 years, eight of which were associated predominantly with Latin America. Lieutenant General DeSalvo spent his last three years on active duty serving as U.S. Southern Command's Deputy Commanding General. While, while the deputy at U.S. Southcom, he was responsible for security cooperation and capacity building with militaries spanning across Central America, the Caribbean, and throughout South America. Prior to his assignment as deputy commander of U.S. Southern Command, he commanded the U.S. 6th Army, where he was responsible for partnering, advising, and mentoring senior Army leaders from Central America, the Caribbean, and South American nations. Earlier in his career, Joe DeSalvo also served as chief of staff at U.S. Southern Command, where he led nine directorates and oversaw the $1.1 billion budget for the command's annual operations. Joe DeSalvo's military experience also includes serving as the senior advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for Western Hemisphere Security and Homeland Defense. Joe retired in 2018 as lieutenant general and currently resides in Jacksonville, Florida, where he provides consulting services focused on leader development, strategic planning, team building, business development and crisis management, and is also on the board of advisors for two private companies and on the board of directors for the Jacksonville Electric Authority. General DeSalvo, welcome to National Security This Week. Hey, thanks, John. Glad to be here. It is. Uh, it, 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 we have a lot to cover today. I am very excited about this show, Southcom AOR. I, I've been there a few times myself. And uh, there's always things going on that nobody knows about. So I- I'm glad you were able to join us today. And-, and where are you calling in from? So yeah, I'm calling in from Jacksonville, Florida, which is where uh, my wife and I decided to uh, uh, live after retiring. And uh, a- anything else on your schedule for today other than this very important radio show that you're joining us for? <laughs> Obviously, this is a pre- preeminent uh, event for my day and probably for this year. Uh, but actually, I do got to talk to the uh, the CEO of the Jacksonville Electric Authority later on this afternoon uh, for a board meeting we have on Friday. So, but this this is the highlight of my day. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, sir, we got a lot to cover. Why don't we go ahead and get started? Uh, I'd like to learn a little bit more about your personal background before we get into discussions on uh, on Southcom Southern Command. Uh, your career in the U.S. Army, especially as a senior officer, pinned you to the Southcom area of responsibility, or, or the AOR, as we say. Uh, many tours of duty aligned with the region. Uh, did the U.S. Army decide to make you a, a Central and South America specialist, or, or did you choose that path of your own accord? Um, they sort of decided to make me uh, <laughs> focus me on this, um, and so what happened was. 
Um, after I finished my brigade command, and that included two tours in Iraq, I was then assigned to the Joint Staff on the Pentagon, and I worked the Iraq Division Desk um, because I had recency in Iraq, obviously. And so at that point in my career, after brigade command, that's when the Army looks at, looks at folks for potential to be selected for Brigadier General. And it just so happened I was fortunate enough to be selected for Brigadier General while on this job already on the Joint Staff. And quite frankly, what happened was the Western Hemisphere slot, the one-star slot, um, was open. And I think for ease of uh, just move one way down the hall, go into that office, that's sort of what happened. Fortunately, I had a great staff and great uh, foreign area officers who got me smart on the uh, on, on Latin America and the Western Hemisphere. Um, and it turned out to be a great assignment, quite frankly. And so I often ask leaders a, a leadership question during our show. And, and, and I for me personally, I can remember leadership lessons or insights uh, that I learned while serving the U.S. Navy, often from very specific events. Uh, were there any specific events in your career that impacted your view on leadership or, or might have impacted your leadership style or philosophy? And I ask that question because you, you reached the rank of lieutenant general, which means the U.S. Army decided you were an exceptionally skilled uh, leader. Yeah, there's been a lot. And I would say, um, one, I've been fortunate enough to have great mentors uh, throughout my career. Uh, when I was a major, I had a fantastic uh, battalion commander who uh, really, really emphasized the, the key to training hard, the harder you train, the less luck you need, um, which is true. And so, um, and that followed me into when I had battalion and squadron and brigade command where preparing for war, last thing you want to do is go in unprepared. So just no kidding. You got to do the harder training. It's it's a pain. It's a lot of work, but I'd rather feel comfortable knowing that the uh, folks under my leadership are ready to go to war as opposed to, well, maybe we're 50 percent there, which is uh, not what you want to be in. And I just had some great mentors. Uh, I was an aide for General Shinseki for a little bit. And his thing was, um, if somebody needs to get the hammer thrown at him for messing up, just take a step back and they probably didn't do it on purpose. So 99% of the time, folks don't screw up intentionally. They just had bad judgment. So take that into account. You don't want to chop somebody's head off when, when they probably do have good service in them. But then um, General Dempsey, another great mentor, um, said, hey, general officers can't have a bad day. If you go moping around at that level, you've got a ton of people below you. They're going to key off you. And they may be having a good day just because you're having a bad day. If you let them know you're having a bad day, you just ruin their day, too. So yeah. you've got to be up. I mean, not, you know, Pollyannish, but um, just because you're having a bad day, folks that are doing stuff underneath, you got to recognize that and, and, and keep them, uh, you know, keep their, their morale up. Um, and then General Kelly, another great mentor I had who I worked for five years and when I was in Southcom. Um, same thing. Let people do their jobs. Um, and, and he'd rather hear what's wrong, what's the bad news, as opposed to what's the good news, so you can focus on uh, uh, what needs to be fixed. Um, and be thick-skinned. Um, if you can't take constructive criticism, you shouldn't be in a leadership position, uh, uh, because otherwise, um, you you know, you don't want to hear when, uh, when things are broke. So just a lot of lessons learned by watching these folks uh, walk the talk that they're, they were talking about. So I've been very fortunate. Yeah. 
Uh, so, sir, let's let's start our discussions on on the U.S. Southern Command uh, AOR, the Area of Responsibility. Uh, could you give our listeners a, a sense of the geographic boundaries for U.S. Southcom? May, maybe some sense of the number of countries in the theater uh, and the population as uh, as well. Sure. Yeah, John. I mean, it's a, it's a huge area of operations. You have thirty one countries, and basically, it's everything south of Mexico. Although, ironically, our Southcom patch includes Mexico. <laughs> I still haven't figured that out after 20 years. But anyway, uh, 31 countries, about 635 million people. So a very, very big AOR, um, very diverse geography. You have the Amazon rainforest, which is huge. Um, you also have the Andes mountain chain, which 24,000 foot uh, peaks. Um, and then you got the driest place on earth in northern Chile, the Atacama uh, region of northern Chile, and then the small islands in the Caribbean. So just a lot of geographic diversity and demographics, same thing, very diverse uh, between the European Spanish. Then you have over 100 different indigenous ethnicities, African descents, Indian descents, and also Japanese descents, too. In fact, Brazil's got the highest Japanese uh, diaspora um, in, in the world outside Japan. So just very diverse. Um, we do have a lot in common, though, culturally. Um, U.S. has 41 million Spanish-speaking uh, people, making the U.S. the fourth largest Spanish-speaking country, actually, which not many people realize. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. And then um, we also have a huge trade relationship uh, with Latin America, just, just a tad under $1 trillion bucks a year. Um, 45% of U.S. exports go to Latin America, and agriculture is, is the biggest commodity we do. And also big fossil fuel industry export and import, too. Um, the region, though, poverty remains a big issue. Roughly 45% of the region lives in uh, poverty, and, and that's a real issue, the have and have-nots, which continue to adversely affect the politics in the region, as well as illicit activities that we can go into later. Uh, but that's sort of a, a overview of a, a very diverse and dynamic area. So there are a lot of a lot of specific topics I think we should get into uh, in the region. Uh, I have to do a quick uh, reminder for our audience that they're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. And we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired Lieutenant General Joseph DeSalvo, who finished his 37-year career in the U.S. Army as the Deputy Commander of U.S. Southern Command, and we're discussing that region today. Uh, So, General, I mentioned in the introduction we'd look at challenges in the Southcom uh, AOR. Uh, So let's go ahead and discuss those now since we've got an overview of what what the theater looks like. What, what, do you, what do you think are the most critical security challenges in the Southcom AOR today, uh, as you see it, of course, uh, based on your le- lengthy experience uh, in the region? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good question, John. And I see it as six critical challenges. The first and foremost is the transnational criminal organization. That's the number one threat. So this is where I'm talking about the narco trafficking, um, but then also illegal mining, which actually brings in more illicit profit than, than the drug narcotics uh, for that. This is illegal gold mining, for example, um, going on in the region, which is just playing heck on the environment mm. uh, on that. And you also have human smuggling uh, also. And, and you combine all this transnational criminal organizations, and um, it's a billion-dollar industry, multi-billion-dollar industry, and um, they, can, they can co-opt the populations because of the have-not populations where 
they're trying to subsist day to day and these uh, illicit traffickers can pay them uh you know to help their cause so it's a win-win sort of um and then you have these they're very sophisticated networks just like terrorist networks these are very resilient sophisticated networks that are hard to uh to intervene and um that's probably the biggest challenge the second one is uh corruption within all the governments and in every government, I don't care who it is, is going to have some degree of corruption. Yeah. However, generally in a Southcom area of operations, these governments have enough corruption that allow these transnational criminal organizations to thrive cross-border and inside the borders, too. Um, and until you get a handle on that, it's it's very hard to neutralize these criminal ne- networks. Yeah. And then third, you got the malign actors, and there's plenty of them. you got China, Russia, Cuba, Venezuela. Um, and just to talk on China and Russia, for Russia, for example, um, they've got pretty good inroads into Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba, and actually a resurgent effort in Cuba. Hmm. Um, and they've got a very good propaganda machine, uh, radio, television, uh, Russia, RT, <laughs> and they do it in Spanish. You may have seen it, yep. and they are very good, but it is all propaganda yep. and comes across as very consensing, uh, anti-U.S., of course, and they have about a 25 million person viewership so they claim on that um and then also they do have uh intelligence assets um openly declared in venezuela and nicaragua too which uh which is concerned for the u.s and then you got china um 25 of the 31 countries host chinese infrastructure projects 40 ports in latin america are done by china and then 19 of the 31 countries have joined china's belt and road initiative and just real quick, that's a supposedly an economic quid pro quo initiative by China where they come in, help you build uh, industry infrastructure, and in return, they get you know some profit from it. Well, it's actually a pretty one-sided deal that offers countries a short-term um, finance benefit, which is all going to be repaid, and they sort of sell their souls to China for the next 50 years with, uh, with these debts they're going to owe China. Uh, but these countries are going for it. Um, China is also guilty of huge illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. And again, this is no one knows about this, but they are just literally violating the economic exclusion zones with their 3,000 fishing ves- uh, vessels on each side of the ocean um, and depleting the, the fishery uh, and, the, uh, and the fish industry for these countries, as well as the international community on it. Um, so that's pretty concerning, obviously. And then the other, the four challenges, there's still violent extremist organizations there. Um, you had the former FARC, so that Revolutionary Army in Colombia, which signed a peace accord several years ago. However, a bunch of those elements just broke off, went rogue, and are still fighting the Colombian government and our regional threats to stability uh, for that. And you have Les- Le- Lebanese Hezbollah is very active in South America. Yeah along with that Iranian connection, too. That's that, um, uh, that tri-border region, right? Tri-border region, right, yeah. exactly. Um, and then you sort of have the circular nature of pro-U.S. to anti-U.S. <laughs> yeah. political environments, which you've seen it. You're familiar with the region. Yeah. Every 10 years, the political winds change to being pro, then anti-U.S., and that makes it sort of hard for the U.S. to you know navigate those sinusoidal you know, uh, political things, pro, then anti, However, the military connection usually is that critical 
connective tissue, as I call it, that keeps our relationship uh, productive and, and at least a heartbeat, especially when things are at the, uh, you know, at the trough of some of these uh, political uh, um, movements on that. Um, and then lastly, the region is always plagued by humanitarian assistance, disaster relief type things, Haiti earthquake, yeah. um, severe weather, hurricanes, et cetera. And, and that's where we have to help everybody get those under control because the longer those natural disasters go unattended, the more populations dis- disaffected, then they turn to the illicit traffickers for subsistence because the government infrastructure can't do it. And, and that's where people look, okay, who's ever really at our, our, can help us out, that's where they need to see it for disaster relief. So Southcom plays a big part in making sure we can help those countries out with that. So I, I, there's a number of things I, I want to follow up on. Uh, let me start uh, initially with the illegal fishing uh, issue. Uh, I, he- I heard a very interesting story when I was naval attache in uh, in Helsinki, Finland. Uh, and Finland is engaged around the world with, with their diplomats. And one of the interesting things that I heard was that uh, uh, the fishing fleets, because there was no government off the co- in Somalia— there was no way to police the exclusive economic zone, that 200-mile exclusive economic zone, off the coast of Somalia. And so during that time frame, uh, the, the Chinese went and just fished out that area. Uh, so we know that we have functioning or somewhat functioning governments throughout uh, South America. Is, are the Chinese fishing fleets, are they hitting mostly the Pacific side or, or the Atlantic side of the, of the continent or, or both? Yeah, both. Uh, they focus so more on the Pacific just because geographically, you know, it, it's so fast. And also the, um, b- with the exception of Chile and a little bit of Peru, you don't have robust navies no. that can do the, you know, the, uh, the maritime patrolling uh, on that. Um, so that's one of the, the, the big things. Now there's, you know, you have your automatic identification system, AIS, yep, AIS which yep. international agreement, everybody's supposed to have those things transponding. <laughs> uh, but China clearly violates those turns them off. And, and even when they get caught, it's really not that big a deal. The government itself doesn't take any action. Um, so unless this starts getting in front of the United Nations, which it's starting to get a little bit of, of uh, publicity on, you know, where internationally it becomes an embarrassment to the Chinese government, that's about the only way we're going to be able to curb this. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, illegal uh, mining. Uh, I how about illegal logging? Uh, is that a significant issue, like in the in the Amazon basin? Oh, sure. Yeah. The, yes. I mean, it's a huge and right. Um, not only again run by illegal organizations. So then you wonder where that money is going to go to eventually. Uh, then also a huge environmental disaster too, as, as everybody knows. And then with this, with the gold mining, getting back to that, what makes that hard is once that stuff is illegally mined, once it hits a a manufacturer. Um, all trails of its origin are gone. Yeah. So then it's just automatically assumed it was legally, um, you know, processed. So then you lose a trail on everything. Um, they're using mercury. I mean, you got to see it. Some of these beautiful areas are now just a cesspools of mercury damaged environment and that has polluted the water. And it's also killing the people. Again, these poor campesinos who are just trying to make money or whatever. Um, hell, they're dying at 35 years old because oh. of the, um, you know, environmental disaster this is, but um, it goes again to the right into the pockets of the illegal uh, uh, traffickers. 
So, so last week on the show, we had uh, Mark Shaw, who's the executive director of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, interestingly enough. So the fact that uh, that, that show has led us into some of the most significant challenges in the Southcom AOR, as you've outlined already, uh, I find that very interesting. Uh, there's, there's clearly a direct connection between uh, the transnational organized crime cartel groups uh, the corruption in the governments and the lack of uh, ability of these governments to effectively police uh, illegal act- illegal, illicit economies, is the way Mark Shaw referred to it, uh, inside their own nations and across their borders. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit shortly about opportunities for the United States, but uh, is there anything else you want to comment on with regards to those, those linkages in the Southcom AOR? Yeah, I think um, a lot of people wonder, uh, how the hell can these cartels just run free reign? You know, yeah. what is it? And I'll just say, in the maritime, so in the ocean illegal trafficking, um, that's where we can effectively interdict and prosecute, because you don't need to worry about going through foreign governments. Um, and that's where the Coast Guard and the Navy combined do a great job to get the cocaine off those semi-submersibles. Mm-hmm. Once you hit the land thing, then... It's a huge interagency, U.S. interagency, and also international um, uh, labyrinth of complex authorities and all that kind of stuff to know can eventually bring a drug kingpin uh, to, to justice. Mm-hmm. And occasionally it works. And when it works, it's great. But everything has got to be aligned right. You've got to trust the people you're working with with that specific government. And even within our own U.S. interagency, it could be DEA, it could be Department of Treasury, <clears throat> could be Department of Justice, a lot of cats and animals within our U.S. interagency where it's got to be coordinated, and, and Southcom usually is in a supporting role for this, but extremely complicated process because you got to stay within the rule of law, yeah. and you don't want to go outside that, but that's why it's so complicated to bring these, these, uh, these folks to justice, quite honestly. You know, I, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that kind of interagency challenge. Uh, so for our listeners, uh, we have what's in the, in the De- Department of Defense called Unified Command Plan that, that breaks down uh, the, the world in these geographic uh, theater combatant commands. Southern U.S. Southern Command is one of them. Uh, and the way we do it in the military is we put all that responsibility on the shoulders of one individual in command of the area of responsibility or that, or that theater. Uh, that is not necessarily the case uh, when we start talking about the other interagency partners inside the U.S. government. So, for instance, my guess, sir, is that when you would travel around the Southcom AOR, you would probably have engagement with each of the U.S. ambassadors in each of the countries throughout all of Central and South America and even the Caribbean nations. And each one of them is is sort of the head of their own fiefdom, so to speak, on the State Department side of things. Uh, how, did you what were the what were the biggest challenges that you saw in that U.S. interagency process in in using the tools of national power uh, to affect uh, eff- you know to achieve effective uh, outcomes in in uh, U.S. national security interests? Yeah, generally the the model works in that the ambassadors, with rare exception, and their country teams. Um, uh, um, did not agree from a uh, operational point of view of Southern Command on um, what we need to be doing. In fact, 99% we saw eye to eye on it. Where it gets complicated is when it's it's now an interregional thing. So now you're talking more than one ambassador. Yeah. And quite frankly, what may be um, an advantage to Colombia may not be an advantage to Peru or Brazil yeah. from the U.S. point of view. 
and then just trying to iron out that sweet spot so that we're not uh, um, inadvertently doing a foot shot to one country will help another one out. Um, th- that's what makes that a challenge. But generally, it works very well um, with that ambassador um, and combatant command linkup, quite honestly. Uh, so, sir, are there are there any other challenges you see for the United States in the region, which we haven't covered yet? Uh, you and I both know that this is that term, saved rounds. <laughs> Do you have any, any saved rounds to share with us on uh, on challenges in the, in the AOR? No, I, I would just say I think um, um, one of the challenges, uh, yeah, is resources. Mm. So the, the combatant commands, um, everybody thinks that, that they all have a bunch of assigned forces and all that. No, they don't. Yeah. It, it depends on how, you know, the Secretary of Defense wants to assign capabilities. So for in every combatant command, they have an Army, Air Force, Marine, and Special Force elements like Army South, which is command. And the whole function of those individual service reps are to draw resources from their home base within their own services to help Southcom out. So you're in a constant competition for resources. Um, and that's where to stop, stop the illicit trafficking, et cetera. One additional white hole or gray hole for, so a Navy boat or a uh, Navy ship or a Coast Guard ship, one additional one can take 22 metric tons of cocaine off the high seas. Yep. Um, and typically, Southcom will get five. Now, in the past year, it's gotten a little bit better, but, you know, can't anybody spare a six one, you know, 22 <laughs> yeah. more metric yeah. tons off? But that's, that's, what, that's a huge challenge, you know, that, um, again, most people don't realize. Uh, but every COCOM has that same challenge. Yeah. Uh, so just the nature of the beast. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired Lieutenant General Joseph DeSalvo, who finished his 37-year career in the U.S. Army as the Deputy Commander of U.S. Southern Command, and we're discussing that region today. Uh, so, General DeSalvo, we've, we've discussed the challenges that America faces in the U.S. Southern Command AOR. Uh, in, in the military, we are trained to prepare for worst-case scenarios. Uh, such scenarios comprise our, our most difficult challenges, and, and while we must be ready for such crises, uh, we usually find ourselves trying to take maximum advantage of opportunities. And opportunities, when we respond well to them, we can often mitigate threats and build alliances. Uh, what what opportunities do you see today for the United States in our engagement with Central and South American countries, and even with our Caribbean nation neighbors as well? Yeah, and, and I know prior made it sound like gloom and doom, but actually there are a lot of good opportunities out there, John. Um, one, we're seeing, we are seeing a uptick in cooperation for the countering transnational organized criminal activity. So all that illicit activity, um, generally all our partners in the region continue to step up and, and improve from both a military, but then also a diplomatic and law enforcement uh, capabilities point of view for that. So, and we continue every year, the region in general is taking more of that illicit commodities off the, uh, you know, off the market. It's just, a, it's a huge task, but it is improving. Um, I think the other thing too is diplomatically, we're, we're starting to break through too, even with those uh, problem children nations like Ecuador, which sort of isn't our best friend. However, in the last four years, they've been more open to cooperating with us for uh, 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 narco-trafficking and have let us use a former base we used to be able to operate out of. They let us operate out of it now to do the uh, um, monitoring from, from uh, the maritime and also uh, air domains. Um, so uh, some of these nations, even though they 
sort of are anti-U.S. They know from a security aspect they need us, and they are starting to come around more and more uh, to be uh, actually uh, good partners with us uh, for that. And then just another example of how I think the region's stepping up, there's a thing called the U.S.-Columbia Action Plan. And what it is, is the Colombian military is training armies in Central Central America, primarily El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, on how to do border security, how to to do uh, counter uh, illicit trafficking operations, et cetera. And it's well-received. The militaries from these CENTAM countries love it. Colombia loves doing it. We help resource it. But um, that's where, and it does a great job of countering the Russia and Chinese, you know, type actions, which are they're trying to uh, portray themselves as uh, security training uh, uh, exporters. And, and the militaries in general know the best exporters of training are the U.S. and or our partners like Colombia. Um, so that's a that's a good news story, too, on that. I have to imagine that uh, when we have regional partners training with each other, that that's beneficial long term for U.S. interests as well. Absolutely. And, and the other thing I forgot to mention is that region continues to do very well in U.N. sponsored missions. Mm. In fact, um, Uruguay, of all countries, uh, has the most participation out of any other country in the world for U.N. mission support in Africa, y- you name it. And these are dangerous missions, too. This isn't just, you know, guarding a, a, a tulip field or something. They do. They are in semi-permissive environments. I mean, they do a very good job on that. Uh, so that's that's a, a, a you know gives credibility to these security forces and to the region too. Uh, so, sir, as you all well know, we as a nation we have we have many many challenges to deal with, and, and they, they always seem to be happening at the same time. Uh, and that means competing for uh, uh, competing prior- priorities for the use of, of finite resources. Uh, if you had to pick the top three or four. Uh, opportunities that we should take advantage of right now in the Southcom AOR, uh, what would they be and, and, and why would you select them? Uh, that's a great question. And so what I'm going to say is it's not like Southcom, from my perspective, needs a ton of it, but just a little bit. And again, one gets back to a few more boats in the ocean for the illicit trafficking uh, helps immensely. You know, by the way, America loses roughly 50,000 people per year due to uh, uh, cocaine overdoses coming from the, our, you know, our Southern border, mm-hmm. uh, which is absolutely astounding. But anyway, so one or two more ships would help. The other thing too would be uh, a little bit better intelligence support. Um, and everybody loves to have all the nice stuff from NRO and everything, just a little bit more that we can there share with our partners uh, to then get those, you know, um, high profile, uh, illicit traffickers, uh, get actual intelligence to, um, to bring those down. Once you start making a dent into those major cartels, they'll, and, and you make it too costly for them, they'll find another place. Now, we're not, I'm not advocating pushing our problem to another AOR, but, uh, you know, maybe that's sort of the way it needs to go. But if we can have a little bit more exquisite intelligence, that certainly would help. So, um, so I'm, I'm a career intel guy, so I have to ask the question, uh, what kind of intelligence specifically do you feel like you need more of? Is it human? Is it better SIGINT? Uh, I mean, wh- what specifically do you need? Yeah, definitely better SIGINT. Okay. So signals intelligence for the folks out there, yeah. Um, because these, these cartels, 
although they're sort of good with their secure comms, they sort of aren't. And just, you know, we, if we could get a little bit better into that, intercepting some valuable intelligence, that that would be uh, worth its weight in gold. And my guess is, is, is those cartels, as they as they mature, they are they are drifting. Well, not drifting. They're they're moving expeditiously into the cyber arena, secure cyber communications, uh, probably on, on the dark web and everything else. So anything sure. that uh, uh, NSA can do to assist Southcom in this uh, in this particular challenge would probably be helpful. So that's that's one. That's one of the competing uh, priorities and challenges. Uh, how about some others? Yeah, then I would say just we, we do have some very good institutional programs in place that we have to maintain. The Inter-American Defense College, no one knows about it, it's in Washington, D.C., but uh, and what it does, it trains at master and Ph.D. level senior politicians, military, you name it, economists from the region um, just to get smart on how that level, how you work diplomatically, uh, militarily and economically. Uh, and a lot of former presidents, high officials are products of uh, the American uh, Inter-American Defense College. So. Uh, we have to keep resourcing that, and it's not that expensive. Sometimes it comes in, well, is it worth it or not? Yes, it's worth its weight in gold. The other institution no one knows about is the Inter-American Defense Board, which everybody thinks is the Inter-American Defense Bank. No, it's a completely <laughs> different thing. So th- this uh, defense board is part of it's the, the security arm of the Organization of American States, okay. another great vehicle that gets everybody, including our problem neighbors, Venezuela, um, uh, Bolivia, et cetera, at least sitting around in the same room so you can attempt dialogue. But this defense board, same thing. It gets us a chance to get everybody from a security point of view together, uh, to include Venezuela, who is still an active member of the American Defense Board. Um, and again, you always get funding issues, and it's a drop in a bucket. I mean, my gosh, it's, it's hardly anything, but sometimes there's this uh, thing of, uh, do we really need it? Yes, we need those. Those institutional programs we have in place, Again, they bridge the gap between the political rhetoric and all the other sort of nonsense that goes on for whatever reason, you know, down in the region. So, so maintaining those, I think, is critical. Um, so I, then, I know that the uh, the service war colleges. I, I, I'm a graduate of the Naval War College. When I was there, there were many uh, foreign uh, officers uh, from from navies and coast guards and and whatnot from countries all around the world, including many from South America. Uh, and, and I have to think that uh, that those programs strongly benefit U.S. interests long term in in exposing those those senior officers to the way we do things and our rule of law and and all the things I think that make America a, a, a great place. Uh, and so those are other programs I assume that you would you think we ought to maybe expand. Absolutely. And just to give you a real world story, so when I was down in uh, South America. Um, uh, I was talking to a Chinese attache, and anyway, Chinese is just to give you an idea. They will send um, our partner nation general officers and even even a colonel level over to Beijing for a three month professional education thing, and they fly in first class with their families, all expenses paid, and all this kind of stuff. And so I asked the guys that have done this, um, you know, a bunch of colleagues. So what what was the best part of it? They said the best part is flying over there. And flying back, the worst part is actually being there because they get nothing out of it. I was talking to a Chinese attaché, and and this dude was following me around the whole time. So you know, and it's actually his Spanish was very good. But anyway, I just said, "So how are you guys doing with your um, military uh, cooperation efforts?" 
in the region. He goes, and he goes, quite honestly, he looks left, right, says, we know we can't compete with you guys. We can't compete with your foreign military sales or equipping and also your education or whatever. He goes, but where we can't compete is we can fly people first class. <laughs> and then he just started laughing. Like, okay, so, you know, but that professional exchange, yes, is absolutely critical. And another aspect that um, not many people know about is our state partnership program, which is huge. So we have 18 states and also Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. are partnered with um, 24 countries in, in South uh, Com area of operations. And that's another avenue for military exchange as well as economic, um, you know, and educational exchanges. Um, the U.S. states that do this love it. It's a great boom for them on multiple fronts. Our partners love it because they have more exposure to the U.S. Um, and it's a win-win situation. I'm almost positive that the Minnesota National Guard is one of those states that has a partnership, I think, in, in Central America, but I, I can't remember for sure. Uh, maybe maybe you recall that. I don't know. It's it's one of many things that you probably had to t- keep track of when you were the <laughs> deputy at Southcom. Uh, any other opportunities uh, that we ought to take advantage of, really, really important things that we could do? Yeah, you know, there is one sort of, and it, it sort of gets back to Afghanistan, you know, in the headlines. And then what about the women in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and women's rights? Um, Southcom four years ago started a, what I think is an ingenious program. It's the um, uh, Women's Pros- women's Professional Security Program, WPS. And what they found was when they were doing the negotiations with the FARC in Colombia and also prior negotiations, they found out that if 30 that um, when women participate in, in negotiations, the success rate improved 35 percent. Wow. If it was going to be successful. Yeah. Now, who would have thought, you know, not sure why it is, but it, it is what it is. So um, the current Southcom commander, Craig Fowler, started this thing. Well, actually, uh, his predecessor, Kurt, uh, Admiral Kurt Tidd, did, too. All right. What are we doing to professionalize? Uh, the women in the in the forces downrange in the AOR, do they have the same opportunities? And let's take advantage of their negotiation skills, et cetera. And this thing is really game momentum. And you're starting to see women get promoted to um, uh, um, general officer rank, which in South America, Latin America, that culture, you don't see much of that. Oh, that, is, that is a huge shift. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and also you're seeing more female representation in their minister you know, ministerial levels and all that. So it is catching on very good. And and actually, it's, it's a program, I think, that's sort of setting the standard for really the other COCOMs to consider if they don't have something like that. But that empowering women in, in the military type thing is is really valuable. So, sir, we just have a, a couple of minutes left. Uh, what, what else would you like uh, the listeners to know about the U.S. Southern Command AOR? Maybe address the theater a bit more, talk about the men and women, both civilian and military, who serve at, uh, in the headquarters uh, or, or out there in the field. Uh, what is it you'd like to share? The floor is yours, sir. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, one again, it just it really is um, the SOUTHCOM headquarters. It's sort of small. It's only 1,300 people. Uh, only which 400 are military. The remaining 900 are either DA civilians or um, contractors. But anyway, the, it, it really is a, a effort focused on interagency cooperation. Um, and so it's a, a very complicated dynamic, um, but it's, it's also fascinating when it comes together. Um, the other thing too is getting back to our partners. 
Um, they've been with us through thick and thin, World War II, Korea, Iraq, Afghanistan. And whenever there's an opportunity for these militaries, especially to help the U.S., um, they do. They need a little help on the sustainment and maintenance side of it. Uh, but they are always willing to to join the fray, you know, if, if that helps the cause, which is um, very refreshing to know. They are also very capable forces when they're properly led. Um, and I mean, they are jungle experts. They're very good at dismounting, you know, et cetera. And, and I, you know, I was talking about how they take advantage of our professional education schools. We go to their jungle schools. We go to their mountain training schools. I mean, because they are the pros at that stuff, too. So it's a two way street. Uh, which fortunately we take advantage of. And then the last thing I'll say is just for sensitivity. Um, so all these nations, we tend to think of, okay, with the exception of Brazil, which is big, but most of these others have the populations of like one of our U.S. states. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy for us to go down and sort of look at a perspective. Well, this is how we do it at the national level. And we sort of crush them with the bureaucracy we think is appropriate for them. So we, we got to be sensitive to that. And especially when it comes to, to uh, defense funding. Yeah. My gosh, I, I had a bigger budget when I was Army South commander than a majority of these nations do. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we expect them to modernize their equipment, all this kind of stuff. Oh, you got to really appreciate what resources they have and then how to optimize working within their resources. If we can do that effectively, um, that helps everybody out. But we, we got to keep that in mind. They, they are nowhere near as robust and, quite frankly, as fortunate as we are from a resourcing point of view. So, And that goes back to specifically one of the things that we've talked about over and over again on this show uh, this year is is how the U.S. uses our tools of national power to achieve our national security objectives, uh, especially in foreign policy, working with partner nations all around the world. We have to be very thoughtful about uh, the unique cultures and capabilities of each of those nations and, and how we boost them uh, to achieve you know, the best that they can be uh, without dictating to them <laughs> how we think they should do it. Exactly. Dictating and overloading them, too. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, Lieutenant General Joseph DeSalvo, thank you so much for joining us today on National Security This Week. Uh, If our audience wanted to learn more about the U.S. Southern Command, uh, where should they turn for information? Yeah, you know, there's there's great resources. One is the really the web, southcom.mil. And in that, you'll see, among other things, Dialogo Magazine. Um, And it's a weekly magazine. They publish what's hot, what's not. Very brief publication. Um, That's good information. America's Quarterly is excellent, monthly publications that I believe you can read online for free. And then also just the Department of State website, their Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs. Um, you'll be able to read all the unclassified cables, et cetera. Um, and so all the information's there that, that we discussed, John, um, if, if you want to get smart on the area. All right. And, and, and your consulting services, uh, there are probably companies or, or, or senior leaders out there listening to this show. Uh, where can they learn more about your services that you provide? So basically on LinkedIn. They look me up on LinkedIn. It's, it's, all, <laughs> it's all there. All right. Uh, so, sir, thank you again very much for joining us today. I, I really appreciate your time. John, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to our show again at 9 a.m. next Wednesday morning, and I hope you'll join us again. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everyone. Take care. 
been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Heritage Bank is the locally owned bank that cares about 